I'm advice, if I may, to take you on a really fucking strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. This week I'm being joined by Jesse from I Dream of Jesse. How are you, my dear? Doing good, Adam. How are you doing? Not too shabby. It is, uh, it's been a hell of a week. It's just exhausting. <laughs> week. <laughs> so burnt right now. Uh, it is November 1st, everyone, and despite being really, really burnt out, we are going to have a great show for you this week. We're going to start off with the Nine Cents Letters. This is uh, sent in by a listener talking about alcoholism. So we'll dive into that just a bit. Um, after that, a little something different with Heather Height, episode 18, Hysterical Zombie Uteruses. You know, there's a small but vocal audience that has been crying out for more uterus talk, so <laughs> you get it today, boys. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah, it's boys asking for it. Um, of course, then we're going to do a little I Dream of Jesse, episode 30. What are we calling this one? Saving Your God. Hmm. Well, I look forward to that. It's always a fantastic show when you're on. And uh, immediately following, we're going to do a little Between the Horns, episode 9. And then we're going to close it out with a listener-submitted creature feature segment. I don't normally do this, but I just figured they took time to send in a review of something I know nothing about. So maybe the rest of you will like to hear about it, too. So this is about the comic titled The Tithe, or The I, I assume it's Tithe. Maybe it's Tith. I don't know. Anyway, it's a good one. Look forward to that at the tail end of the show. couple show notes as per usual before we dive in. Uh, of course, this is November 1st, so we just finished up Halloween. And what the fuck? I, I genuinely think Halloween is going just to shit. <laughs> just to shit. Why? Maybe, I don't, well, here's the thing. Maybe it's always been like this. I just never experienced it this way. Um, so my my son had two friends over. And while we, my wife and I, took our daughter out, who's much younger, um, they manned the door. And then when we got back, they went out. So it was pretty late when they started going out. And it wasn't maybe 25 minutes in that my wife gets a text that they're actively being jumped at the school which is not very far from my house. My daughter's school, actually. And so I am a glass of wine down for the night, like in horror movie mode, and I hear my kids being jumped. I immediately, adrenaline kicks in. I grab my keys, grab my wallet, run to the car, hightail it down there, and the two boys that my son is with, one is an huge, like an Andre the Giant size kid his age, and the other is the exact opposite. Just this tiny, scrawny, little, freaky little kid. Um, and then there's just my son, who I think is just sort of average in his build and stuff. And so I was surprised that they would be jumped, but there was no one there, just the big kid crying. And apparently what happened is, like, I don't know, these 
four or five, it, the number changed depending on when they were telling us the story. Uh, kids sort of cornered the big one because he was the only one actively trick or treating. My son and the younger scrawny kid didn't want any candy, so they didn't even bring a bag or anything. Um, and so the big one, who was dressed as Fat Bastard from the the um, uh, Austin Powers shows. Um, he was cornered against this chain link fence by these four other kids and the other, like my son and his friend apparently didn't do anything to like stop it. And the four of the other kids were just sort of punching this big fat kid uh, a couple times. And then I pulled up and they popped smoke before I got there, I guess, uh, because I didn't see anyone. I saw two kids walking down the street before I got to where the school is, but it was just two stupid kids. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know who the fuck they are. Um, and so essentially my kids got jumped over like just being outside. <laughs> and so I, maybe this happens all, I've been jumped before. So it's not like it doesn't happen. It's just weird on Halloween of all nights. It seems like it's more the time for people to have fun than to be aggressive. At least that's how I've always experienced it. I, I don't, have you ever experienced like a weird aggressiveness during Halloween, Jesse? It's been a while since I've been around, you know, the masses on Halloween. Mm -hmm. So I. As a kid, did they, you ever did experience that? They want that? his candy. I mean, was that what this was about, or they were just being I, dicks? I I think I don't know for sure because I could never get a straight answer. But that's what I think it's about, which it sounds so hokey and made up that I can't. I just can't believe that that's really what happened. But, I mean, the kid had a bloody nose. He had welts on his face, so he got hit. So how, whatever really happened, you know, the kid was struck by someone. Yeah. Just weird. I don't know. It, it, it totally, like, burned the whole night to shit. Like, that, that was it. You know, and, like, I'm sort of in this aggressive, like, uh, adrenaline phase. Like, my son didn't get hurt, so I should start calming down. But these are other little kids, so even if I did catch them red-handed, I can't beat them. They're just stupid little fucking hoodlum kids. And on the other side of it, I want to do something, but then I'm like, well, this is something that people have to experience for themselves so they understand a lesson from the situation. And you can derive any number of lessons from a situation like this that are integral to learning how to like move about in the wild, <laughs> like around other hostile youths, especially yeah. in my neighborhood. You wouldn't think Utah's like a aggressive place, but I'm in a pretty bad neighborhood, to be quite honest. Um, but we've never had problems. This is the first time. So I don't know. It's it's weird, man. It it, it totally ruined the whole night. I had my uh, my half sister over, and we were just sort of. Chilling, trying, and I, I was baking all day too. Like my wife and I just made an, a, a bunch of pies from scratch and we were just sort of enjoying the Halloween day up until the evening when you're supposed to have the most fun and then <laughs> poo. So I don't know. I'm glad my kid's not hurt. Sucks. So was the, was the big kid pissed that the other kids didn't get his back? I don't know. I, I don't know. And that's why none of this really jives in, in my head. Like, it doesn't make much sense. They, there's no way that they could have ran away, so maybe they're just standing there, like, yelling? Like, don't, you know, leave them alone type thing? But I don't know. I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I think maybe they were abducted by UFO aliens. Um, the aliens probed them and then punched them in the face for a cover. 
and then dropped <laughs> him off. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what really happened. <laughs> I, I haven't checked for like aggressive anal fissures or anything, and I don't want to. So I'm just going to have to go on gut instinct on this one. <laughs> yeah. Weird, so um, totally changing the subject because I have no real good transition for that story. Just wanted to explain what a weird fucking night it was. Um, I watched a show called Southpaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. Have you seen that show yet? No, I haven't. Have you heard of it at all? Not at all. So it's like a boxer movie. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a boxer who is from the streets. Um, it, the movie starts with him being in like the height of his fame as this sort of undefeated champion. Um, his wife, it's not a secret, this is in the trailer, but his wife gets shot. His life spirals apart. He loses his daughter to um, uh, the state. And then the point of the movie is him coming back from that. But this movie... <laughs> Holy the the death scene of his wife, I was in just bawling. I was in like complete hysterical bawling. I could not. It was the mo they they dragged the scene out so long, and they were so goddamn good in it. It it tore me up. Like and and that's like twenty five minutes in. And from that point, then he starts losing his daughter and his daughter's reaction to this. I I I was a mess this whole movie. Like, this doesn't happen <laughs> to me in movies. This movie, I didn't know where it was going, where it came from. It was the most emotional ride I've ever had in, in a movie before. It it blew my fucking mind. And so now I'm like, I I don't ever want to see it again because it how it made me feel. <laughs> but it was like the best movie I've seen all year. I, it was so weird that I would love the movie so much, but I never want to see it again because I'm afraid <laughs> of how I'm going to react if I do see it. Fucked up shit. Do you have movies like that where they just hit you out of nowhere? Well, I mean, I, I still cry at Sound of Music. Oh, really? Um, what part? But but there was one movie. Um, it was one about apartheid in South Africa. And oh, I'm drawing wow. a blank on the name of it. But yeah. that just really disturbed it. That's one of those great movie. I don't ever want to see it again. <laughs> it's, it's weird how those movies are. I don't know. Yeah. You'd think because we're human and, you know, we understand we are emotionally driven creatures, primarily. Uh, we would almost champion movies like that. But I don't know. It brings out like a lack of control almost. Like, I think there are some movies where you just enjoy it because it evokes something in you. But, man, this one didn't. It, I did not like it. <laughs> I couldn't help it. It came to a point where my daughter, because it was my wife and I watching it during the middle of the day. We did Redbox the night before and we had to watch him before we had to turn him in. Um, so my daughter came in and she, like, walked in front of us for a second. She's like, are you crying? <laughs> like... She has, she doesn't know what this is, what's going on. She doesn't just in a total vacuum. Her mom and dad are bawling on the couch. <laughs> just like what is, did someone die? What what happened? What's going on? Why are you losing it? You're supposed to be our you know the bedrock of this family, and you are a blubbering child right now. Oh man, total nightmare. <laughs> yeah, so we uh we threw in a dog kennel for about two hours. It was all right. <laughs> Uh. No, not really. <laughs> it was messed up. So yeah, my my daughter knows I'm a total puss. <laughs> yeah, she's gonna start nagging you about the movies you watch before bed. 
Yeah, yeah. No Don't watch that. You're going to be that. sobbing in your pillow. Sleeping with me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> totally messed up. Yeah, and to add to all of this weird drain this weekend, um, I've, I just this morning... Uh, rather, this afternoon, finished uh, the third video in the Pumpkin Ale series that I'm doing for that Wart Nation homebrewing project that I have going. And I don't know about you, Jesse, um, like with with things that you're uh, passionate about and you, you know, projects that you finish, for me, I get drained afterward. Like, I'm totally useless every week after I do this podcast. I'm just... It, it takes so much energy. Whenever I do video series, it takes so much goddamn energy to get them like right. And I don't know if it's maybe just the way I do it or because I'm so insistent on things, but it drains me. Like I just, I'm useless. And so I just feel so burned right now because not only Halloween sucking, that movie sapping me, the videos sapping me. And I'm just like, fuck, you know, after this, after this episode today, I'm just going to crash. I'm going to bed. <laughs> I can't. I can't take any more weekend. <laughs> so worse. Worse for the wear. Do you get that, though, when you, when you work on projects and they just you find they suck you out of life? That's, it's actually kind of the reverse. Where really? Starting them, they drain me more, but as, as things start to come together, then it's a bit more energizing. Oh, I, fuck. I might be doing it wrong. <laughs> I feel like I'm hosting like this huge party. I'm spinning all of these plates at once. And then finally everyone leaves. And I'm just like, oh, oh, it's over. Oh, it was so hard tap dancing for everyone at the same time. And oh, God, that's how I, I don't know. Maybe I need to just start doing what you're doing. What are you doing? <laughs> What's your secret? <laughs> Damn it. I'll have what you're having, Jesse. There you go. Damn it. Which, um, which at the moment right. would be a bush light in a can. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. I'm not drinking bush light in a can. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you want to you wanna do a little nice and letters? Sure. Talk about something cheery like alcoholism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With, with my, you know, just, just talking about drinking beer. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> We're the worst. <laughs> Though I am an active member, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. A man newly married. Um, he's had a drinking problem since he was like 15, 16. Uh, he joined the Marines. That didn't help. Um, but by the time he turned 22, he just kind of said, I, I need to get my shit together. Quit cold turkey. Was sober for a couple of years. And on his wedding night, I thought, well, it's a special occasion, I'll just have a couple, and it kind of slid downhill from there. Mm -hmm. uh, he stopped again, but looking for kind of long-term advice on this one. Um, interesting letter. I did reach out to him asking if he wanted to come on and talk about it. I uh, wasn't able to. Um, but I think the story is pretty straightforward enough that we don't you know, we don't need to do uh, much back and forth with him on the fine details. He did give us a pretty detailed question, sort of background setup. Um, do you have alcoholics in your family, Jesse? Yep. What do, What would you say to this? 
Well, there's there's like three different takes on alcoholism or ways of looking at it. Um, you get the people who say that it's a disease and, and you know, you can't blame the person and, you know, it, they, they, it's medicalized, whatever. Then you get the people who say that it's entirely behavior and, you know, the person makes the choice to drink and, you know, so they're entirely to blame and there's no sympathy for them. And then there's a third way, which is the one I tend to subscribe to, which is that it's sort of an adaptation. It's not, you, you're never fully in control. You know, it's, we tend to think we're more rational than we are. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our behaviors are, are just based on things that we don't even understand are going on with us. And so the alcohol would be an adaptation to what else is, what everything else is going on in the person's life. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the correct way to view it, but it's it's the way I like because it doesn't blame the person entirely and it doesn't let them off the hook either. And that way it kind of it, it gives a an opportunity for control, I guess. Um, so with if that is the correct way to look at it, then you know, sort of a, a way to deal with it long term. First off, you need to kind of look at your whole life and, and see, okay, what is it that's, what is it that makes me want to take the first drink of the day? And, you know, that if it's, you know, you, the first drink of the day is when you come home from work, well, maybe there's a lot of stress at work and you just want to not have stress at home. And I believe he said he's got some kids. I think he's got kids. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. So that might be causing stress. Maybe there's some marital issues that are causing stress bills i don't know so if this is his way of dealing with stress at night first off he needs to figure out well okay let me i'll, I'll say first off you need, he needs to look at his life and figure out um what's out of balance that's that he needs to have this drug in his life that rebalances it for it um i shouldn't really say first off though because you can't quit drinking and then try to deal with the problem that makes you drink. You have to first come up with something to replace the drinking to give yourself the time to deal with whatever it is that makes you want to drink. Um, so like, I don't, I don't know what triggers it with him. If it's, you know, going out in public and dealing with other people with social situations, he's got to drink. That would be one way if it's coming home at night after work and he wants to unwind, and that would be dealing with it another way. Because basically what he what he should do, in my opinion, is come up with something that replaces whatever the alcohol does for him. And you know, I'll just go with the example of, you know, you come home from work and you're stressed out. So what you want is something that is going to consistently relax you as much as alcohol does, something that's as easy to do as it is to have a drink, um, something that's as cheap to do, as easy to do, as convenient to do. And honestly, the best thing I could come up with for that is internet porn and masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's only on a satanic podcast that that would come up as a possible cure for drinking. <laughs> I'm actually quite serious because I mean, if if it's a need to relax when you get home, 
and to have fun when you get home and not worry about anything when you get home, that is going to totally take your mind off your problems and relax you and invariably feel good. Just like yeah. the booze does. Yeah. So you want to have a drink, <laughs> you go jack off instead. And, in, and then once you get yourself in the habit of doing that instead, then you can say, okay, what, what is it that's causing me so much stress that I need to unwind as soon as I get home? Wow. <sighs> Makes sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. Look to the root cause. Yeah. Uh, as someone who drinks and habitually masturbates, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if uh, I could take that advice personally, but um, no, seriously, um, I think that's fantastic. What... What I don't think many people do that you have uh, focused, I guess, for me, put into clarity for me, is looking to the root cause of behavior. You know, whether that's the first time you brought it up for me was, uh, we discussed it last week in the Greater Magic episode um, through ritual, but also in this, you know, for drinking. So I think that's a really wonderful uh, suggestion to examine your behaviors, your motivations, um, and uh, start from there. Start with the root cause. I so I was um, I was a, I don't know. My, my father was an alcoholic. I, he wasn't really in my life. Um, I was always taught never to be involved in alcohol at all because my parents are a religion that shuns drinking. And so the first chance I got, I dove in head first. But I always had this sort of life lesson behind me saying, your father, who I would later find out, died of alcohol abuse, but I just knew him as an abusive alcoholic. Um, that is very much in your genetic disposition like predisposed to alcoholism so that's going to happen to you if you don't either not drink or manage your drinking and so i've always taken a step where i manage my drinking now i don't know if you know like you were saying alcoholism can be seen in three different ways i don't know if it's a disease that is a genetic disease i don't know if it's a behavioral thing um all i know is I'm able to say, I've had three beers, I don't need a fourth. And I've always been able to say, I have had two glasses of wine, I really don't need a third. And just stop. But I know people who can't. And so it makes me, and I would like to think that I'm the most powerful, but the reality is, is I just think people are different and they, some want to stop, some don't want to stop. And I don't know if it's a conscious thing or a genetic thing, but it, you have done, and I'm speaking to the uh, author here, you've stopped because you recognize a problem. As a Satanist, I can think of no other path. If historically you are unable to casually drink, then don't drink. It's that simple. Like, just don't do it. If you find yourself wanting to drink then do as Jesse said and look to the root cause of that. What is it that's causing that need? Um, what is it about your current situation that's driving that? Uh, and if it is just something where you're just addicted, like, you know, I, I did a lot of drugs as a kid and I can understand drug pull in your mind, you have to abstain. You cannot, if, if you are 
literally being drawn by the idea of it, then you need to cut it off. You've done that. So cheers to you. And as a Satanist, and here's something that I think is really important because this gentleman um, had said, you know, he recognized it. He would never blame his behaviors on anyone in his life. He owns it. He understands as a Satanist, responsibility to the responsible. He's just asking for our opinions in the situation. That's all. He has it under control at this moment. You need to be vigilant, my man. You cannot ever get to a place where you think, you know what? It's my wedding night. Let me have a couple beers. It's, it doesn't work that way for you. For whatever reason, it doesn't work that way. Some people can do it and do it casually and be fine. Some people cannot. It, it's the reality of it. Find something else, just like Jesse was saying. If it's masturbation, if it's uh, yodeling. I don't, I don't suggest that. That would probably break up your marriage. But just in case she likes yodeling, maybe try that. <laughs> yeah, video Do games. something to fill that gap. Sorry, you are saying? I was saying video games. Yeah, yeah. Do something to eat up your time. I think, uh, so that's actually a really good point there, Jesse. Um, I was a pretty heavy smoker all through, from from junior high through high school, through my young adult life um, in my first couple years of the army, and then I just cut off cold turkey. And I cut off, my, my initial desire was because I saw the effects of smoking reflected at me through my wife like I saw how she was reacting physically like her body and her, her breathing and her coughing and everything I was like whoa if I want her around if I want to be around we have to stop this like this isn't working and we were able to do it cold turkey because we filled that void with uh as this sounds really dumb <laughs> it's the only reason why I'm bringing this up because we did fill that void with video games there's this uh at the time this was back in 99, 98 or something. So there's a game called EverQuest that just came out that I just sort of fell into at the time. And it, it consumed many years of my life <laughs> uh, all through my military career. But it was a way for me to not think about smoking because I was doing something else. It consumed my thoughts when I was not at work. And then when I was at work, I was constantly drawn in because everyone smokes in the military. At least they did where I was. And uh, so I just stood outside with them and enjoyed the aroma but I just never touched a cigarette because I never wanted to because I filled that void uh, when I was really really wanting to um, so that's really good really good advice now everyone knows I'm a fucking nerd <laughs> hey you're a non-smoking nerd so yeah not dumb at all <laughs> yeah I'm like every other nerd out there now <laughs> no uh, and to be quite honest if I had I don't know, time, I probably would still play video games, but I just don't have time. Um, all right. So, I don't know. Anything else you want to say? With it? I mean, it's it's a really nuanced situation, but in your situation, I really do think abstinence is the only solution and owning behavior, right? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go taking that chance again. It's, it, it's not worth it. I mean, think about it. What, what are the actual benefits of having a drink or two? It's not... A drink or two is not going to make you feel all that different. And in terms of, you know, being part of a social group, that's so irrelevant. So there's no benefit to trying it and all, all the risk in the world to trying it. So, yeah, stay, stay clear. I, I do want to say this is a closing thought. I think I may have mentioned it, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago or something. When I first made that conscious decision to stop smoking, one of the, the catalysts that made me think that I could actually get through it was that uh, 
uh, one of my sergeants was, uh, uh, what was his name? Melendez, I think. Staff Sergeant Melendez. Um, it, it doesn't matter for the sake of the conversation, just sort of stuck in my head. Um, he had said that the only way that he was able to quit smoking was by seeing himself as a non-smoker. You know, we have these residual images of ourselves in our heads. Like, this is what, this is the type of person I am. This is who I want to be. And whether it's society putting that on you or whether it's, you know, something that you're drawn to, like, I want to be this gothic kid or I want to be this steampunk kid or, or part of me. And for me, at the time, I, you know, growing up, I, I saw myself as this sort of rocker, this sort of hessian. And I had my leather jacket, my long hair, and I had to have a cigarette. It just made sense. It, it was part of the costume that I was wearing. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, I, like, Adam is not that social creation that I had as a young man in my head of what I wanted to be. Adam is something much more complex and completely different. I don't need a smoke. Like, it's just not a part of who I am as an individual, so I stopped. And that, like, coming to terms with that was the only way I think I was successful because I realized that I'm doing this because I think it's part of who I am. I think it's part of my style. I think if I think of what Adam is, I was a smoker. And the reality is, is you are not your behaviors. You are much more complex than that. And if you can shake that thought loose, well, you can do anything. Like, you don't need it. It's a crutch, you know? So, I don't know, maybe that would help. Just don't see yourself as a drinker. That's right. the reality of it. You're not a drinker. See yourself as a masturbator. Yeah, a chronic <laughs> after work <laughs> masturbator. Wanker, <laughs> I believe, is the... Yeah. There, and, you know, the reality is there's so many things that you can fill uh, your time with for uh, satiation. What, you know, start a garden. Start cooking classes with your wife if you want to connect with your wife. Start dancing lessons with your wife. Do things uh, that connect you with those that you love and care about. That way you're not only shaking that demon off your back, that monkey, but you're also reconnecting with those that you really love and you want to spend time with. So fill the drinking hole with marital activity and the passion will come back health will come back love will come you know it, it, there are so many ways to just have a better relationship you don't need this other thing you know so I don't know. It, it's hypocritical of me saying it with a glass of wine in my hand so I apologize for that but I don't have a problem I can stop whenever I want fuck you <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know it, I do feel fucked up saying that <laughs> when I'm drinking. I'm sorry, man, but no, I, I know a lot of people who don't drink, and they're uh, all individually kick-ass people, and I know a lot of people who do drink who can't handle it, and they are fucking just sad. So be you, don't be what you do, I guess is the takeaway. I don't know. Uh, you think that covers it? I think so. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get much better anyway, so let's do a little something different with Etherite.
I'm such a stupid asshole. Welcome to this week's edition of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. This week, I'm going to talk about something. I'm doing it like right now. I'm like in my robe, and my son just got up, and I'm all like in a tizzy over this topic. And I'm like, sit down, we're going to record a nine cents <laughs> or a something different on nine cents. You know what I mean? Anyway, I, I've been taking Wellbutrin. And my doctor gave it to me for anxiety. And the um, thing about Wellbutrin is I was given it like 10 years ago. And this is going to get somewhat personal, but you're going to hear it anyway. Um, and I started having issues with hemorrhaging, like uterine hemorrhaging. And I asked the doctor about it, and he said, it's not the medication, keep taking it. And, of course, I didn't. I stopped it and have had issues ever since. I never had any problems. I was like clockwork until that. And then all of a sudden, I just have my period for three months straight. <clears throat> and it took years and, and eventually ended up giving me uh, um, endometriosis, which is like zombie uterus, like the cells from the right, ugh, the cells from inside your uterus start to spread and turn other parts of your body into uterus. You know you could get it on the surface of your skin? You could get endometrial cells on the surface of your skin and then when the woman gets her period, that those cells will bleed. It's really super uncommon, but it's a thing. And and it'll it can those cells can spread to your liver. They like I had it all over my ovaries, but not on my liver. But they had to check all of my insides to make sure that I didn't have endometrial cells. And it happens from excessive bleeding because that makes the cells flow out of and they get everywhere because it's just bananas in there. It's just crazy. So anyway, um, so, you know, 10 years and I was like, oh, maybe it was just me. You know, I mean, I'm no I'm no doctor. Perhaps he was right. So when this doctor prescribed Wellbutrin, I was like, oh, I'll just take it. It's fine, you know? And she started me out at 150 milligrams. I immediately started hemorrhaging. And I didn't even think about it at first. At first, I thought it was just me because after that first incident, I dealt with it for years. And then I started getting... Um, what was the, remember the first time I got the giant hives? Yeah. They were on my back. I thought something bit me, and that probably wasn't the first time because remember, over the summer, I woke up and I had like a big thing on my back, and I said something bit me. Yeah. It must have got me in my sleep. It like woke me up in the middle of the night, and I was scratching. I humongous hives, like huge, like golf ball size hives, on on my back, and then I got one on my arm, and then I started getting weird thoughts about slicing the hive open which is fucked up i'm still a little weirded out that i had that thought like it was beyond it was like an urge to do it that is all side effects from wellbutrin all of that that was up to um from 150 to 300 milligrams before i realized and that no it wasn't until i went up to 450 milligrams and then I started to get really bad. Like the slightest um, emotional agitation would make me break out in hives. Or I went to see the, the wrestling movie <laughs> about Jake the Snake. And while I was there, I was like choking back tears the whole time. And that was another thing. I was incredibly weepy, just so weepy. 
the whole time. And then I'm, I'm, I'm watching the movie and I'm like getting all emotional about it. And I start breaking out in hives. And that's when I realized this is probably the medication. <laughs> so I talked to my therapist about it. And, and these are, I'm a 46 year old woman. I have a college education. And, and I see a therapist and I tell her these, and I'm a rational person for somebody who sees a therapist. <laughs> and, and she says, do you think it might be bed bugs? Do you think it might be bed bugs? No. You know why? Because I live with other humans and none of those people have bed bugs. What the fuck? Do I think it would be, I would have to be out of my mind not to know if I had bed bugs for months, for months. Yeah, oh no, I've just had, I've just had bed bugs in my house for the last six months and I'm not aware of it. So anyway, today I went on Wellbutrin's site. I, I had gone on their site before. I looked up the, um, which is where I first looked up the, uh, to see if these were symptoms like, like side effects. And um, that was another thing my therapist said. Oh, it sounds like you've done some research. Like she said it real condescendingly. Like, yeah, I researched. I looked up the official prescribing information sheet on Wellbutrin's website. No, I'm fucking, I'm not looking at WebMD. I'm not looking at some Wellbutrin con conspiracy theory website, if there is such a thing. I'm looking at their website. And I'm looking at the percentages that they have listed versus placebo and the side effect. And they have hemorrhaging listed at like 2% for people taking 450 milligrams or more. And at 0% for people taking 300 milligrams or less. I started hemorrhaging at 150 milligrams. And this is where I get to my point. <laughs> my point with this of course of course they're gonna like ah, i'm not saying like really lie fudge the numbers maybe take the lowest percentage possible without really lying or whatever the fuck they do to kind of blur the lines and make themselves look a little better and make it a little harder to sue them whatever good for them but the thing is specifically when it's a female problem I'm a female, of course I'm going to take issue with that, but it takes decades for women to even be a little bit taken seriously when they have, for, for female specific issues. Case in point, I was just telling you the history of hysteria, which isn't even like, I mean, it could be PMS, hysteria. I'm pretty sure hysteria was any time a woman in the Victorian age had a mood that her husband didn't like, <laughs> he would take her to the mental institution or her doctor and say she had hysteria. And if she was lucky and they were wealthy, her doctor would just masturbate her. And thank God for that invention. Because seriously, if it wasn't for medical malfuckery there would be no vibrators well there would have been a vibrator eventually i mean you know yeah but it, they certainly wouldn't be manufactured in the, the you know volumes that they are because you know fuck that it's just for women but um they would masturbate them but if not 
if they were unfortunate enough to be committed, then they would be treated for their mood with electric shock therapy. And they called it hysteria, okay? Um, fibromyalgia. Even I scoff at fibromyalgia. And I have chronic pain. I, you know, I have symptoms of fibromyalgia, and I still am like, I don't believe in it. But it exists. People have it. And finally, they were like, okay, it's a thing. Here's some drugs. And they're treating it with um, uh, the same, uh, like immuno immunodeficiency drugs or something like that. Immunosuppressant drugs. I don't know. But anyway, so they think it's something that's attacking your body, like, like rheumatoid arthritis. And um, and still, even after they're like, okay, it's a thing, PMS, it's a thing, or uh, PMDD, dysphoric disorder, the premenstrual dysphoric disorder, the the commercial with the women like fucking losing their minds, and <laughs> well, anyway, that's a thing. That's a thing. It's, it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is like when you really fucking lose your shit, <laughs> and the uh, and fibromyalgia. And now, you know, in the hemorrhaging thing, all these things were things that, oh, it's just in your head. It's just in your head. You're imagining it. And even now that it's diagnosable and it's and people believe it and doctors are like, no, it's really existing. Still, we as society kind of, you know, make jokes. We make jokes about PMS. I have almost killed motherfuckers. That's not... That's a serious thing, PMS. <laughs> and fibromyalgia is a thing. But we kind of, you know, even I, kind of make fun of fibromyalgia. Oh, you're just a pussy. <laughs> just fucking move. One of, the, one of the treatments for fibromyalgia is get off your ass and exercise. So, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe it's like you're a fat ass. You need to move around. <laughs> but still, it's real pain. It's a real thing. And, and then, so... Still, you know, oh, maybe it's bed bugs. Oh, it's all in your head. And But whose fault is it when the woman drives her minivan into the lake full of her children's already dead bodies? Whose fault is that now? Is it hers? It's all her fault. And then we, oh, she's a fucking monster. She's a fucking sick person. Maybe she should have had shock therapy. <laughs> maybe she needed to be masturbated, you know? Maybe she needed a good vibrator, a little less Christianity, perhaps, because I think she did say God told her to do it. Why is God? Oh, God's a dick. God is such a dick. But anyway, <laughs> those are my thoughts on this. I just wanted to get that out there. This has been another episode of Something Different with Heather Height on Nonsense. <laughs> you can Google me. I know it sounds a little dirty, but I like it. Um, see you next week. Hail Satan.
Civilization complete. What is the age of the artifact? It appears to be approximately 6,666 years old, precisely. Approximately precisely, huh? What is its composition? It appears to be made of two precious metals found only on the carbon-based planet named Terra-6 in System-6 of Galaxy-6, formerly known as Earth. The first is sterling silver, and the other is 14-karat gold. Is there any record of a previous entry? Affirmative. Record number 66 shows a similar artifact with a perfect match known as the Anton LaVey Sigil Pendant. What is its origin? The origin is a place called I Satan. From a place. So sorry, you grammar Nazi. The origin is from a place called I Satanist, a company that produces the finest quality satanic jewelry in the known universe. Computer, don't you mean produced? Negative. I Satanist still exists to this day, sir. How is that even possible? Wow, you ask a lot of questions. Before the destruction of Terra 6, I Satanist has expanded to all other Terra planets in order to survive. It is known that self-preservation is the highest law. Yes, I'm fully aware of that. Take us to the nearest ice Satanist immediately. Plotting course now. Jesse, what do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd I'd like you to dress me as master. I I am your master after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like, a belly dancer? Uh, I I assume that was part. I mean, the outfit. It it kind of suggests. You may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle. He forgot to add the preservatives. Now, the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it? Call the number on the bottle and complain. Ever have one of those moments when you're doing something you're good at and things are going well and all prior efforts start to pay off? I've heard it referred to as flow. You're at the top of your game doing what you were born to do. I'm not having one of those days. As a for instance, before leaving for work on Friday morning, I made a point of having everything neat and organized in my ritual chamber so that I could just walk in and do a ritual on Halloween if I wanted to. I come back from work Friday night and discover that one of the cats brought a bird in and decided my ritual area was the best place to have lunch. Artifacts were knocked over, papers strewn and crumpled, blood and feathers everywhere. I can just imagine if for some reason the police had shown up to search my house and they came upon this. No, really, officer, we don't sacrifice animals. The cat did it. 
it really did look like what other people must think of the aftermath of a satanic ritual would look like. And really, what reaction can you have to that except to facepalm and chuckle? It seems like everything this last month has been an uphill battle, and the creation of this episode was no different. I've had countless false starts and moments of frustration where all I could think is, I've got nothing. So here's my attempt to tackle the problem by talking about the problem itself. I've got this genetic predisposition to depression. Lots of relatives on meds, lots, I have lots of relatives who are on meds for it, and of those who aren't, one drugs, one drinks, one gambles. I think I've got just one blood relative who's got his shit together. Any kind of family gathering serves as a reminder, there but for the grace of me go I. Now, I don't know how common depression really is, but I'm guessing I'm not the only Satanist who experiences it. And in a religion espousing strength through joy, getting depressed can add a feeling of weakness and of being a fraud to an already lousy combination of frustration, overwhelm, apathy, and fatigue. Clearly, no Satanist wants to be depressed. I trust any Satanist who gets depressed has taken some action to help himself or herself. Some do the therapy and the meds, I personally don't do this because I distrust the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, and because I went to college I went to college with far too many psychology majors. But that's me, and I don't want to discourage anyone else from going down that road if it helps. There's plenty of information out there on actions you can take to keep from feeling depressed, from aerobic exercise to eating right to going to church. Now, obviously, I'm not recommending that last bit, but it helps to understand that regularly scheduled interaction with others, particularly if it's in a setting where participants are encouraged to be polite, can be part of a depressed individual's social safety net. If you can accept the fact that churches help people without getting all infernally indignant, then you can examine why churches help people. Then you can replace the church with something that keeps the good parts and ditches the harmful nonsense. So exercise, eating right, getting plenty of sleep, etc. All of these actions are promoted as ways to avoid depression, which I'm all for. But what I don't see as often is what to do when none of it works. Because no matter what meds you're on or how many steps your pedometer recorded or how active you are in your community, you're going to get depressed anyway. And if you view this as intolerable, then you're going to start thinking, I need to switch meds, or eat more spinach, or remove every last scrap of clutter from my home. You're basically going to blame yourself for not doing enough to maintain your mental health, adding guilt and shame to the frustration, overwhelm, apathy, and fatigue, and being a weak-willed fraud of a Satanist. That'll make you feel better. <laughs> I need to go off on a tangent about the clutter thing, though. Clutter is one of those things that can trigger feelings of depression, so clearing it up does help. But I recently came across a YouTube video of Marie Kondo, an author and entrepreneur making money off helping people declutter. In this video, if you Google books clutter Japanese, you'll find it. In this video, she gets this woman to lay out all her books and then does this mumbo-jumbo hand-waving, awakening the book so they'll talk to their owner. Then she has the book owner go through and only keep those books that make their owner happy. So basically get rid of the shit you're never going to read again. At no point does Marie Kondo talk about avoiding depression, but that's the real benefit of her book. Well, that and finding your car keys a little faster. Readers of her books 
tidy up their homes and feel better so they buy into the mystical crap she packages with it. Just like people going to church and feel better, feeling better after interacting with others, buy into the mystical crap that comes in that package. But let's get back to the inevitability of depression. I believe if you try to tell yourself you should never feel depressed, you're only going to feel worse when you do get depressed. But accepting the inevitable doesn't mean pitying yourself as a powerless victim of mental illness either. What I don't often see when reading up on depression is a solid plan for working through it when it hits. I guess that doesn't sell as well as a book to tell you how to avoid it. I did recently come across a book called Fuck Feelings that is meant to help manage depression while recognizing its inevitability. The book gave me the idea to, to address depression in this way, but I'm about a third of the way through it and I'm not all that impressed with it. It's a little too powerless victim-y for my tastes. Now, the best advice I can give for getting through periods of depression is to live the satanic philosophy outside those periods. For example, one of the things they tell you to do is keep busy. Well, if on your better days you're indul indulging in pleasurable activities and hobbies and creating things, you're going to be busy. You're going to have things you have to do, depressed or not. You're also going to be in the habit of being active. If on your good days you create and maintain an aesthetically pleasing lair, then when you're down, looking around won't bring you down further. And you'll be in the habit of cleaning up after yourself. And your cats. Especially your cats. <laughs> If on your good days you eat well, then when depression hits and you find yourself reaching for comfort food, probably the worst thing you'll have in stock is still going to be fairly healthy. The way depression gets talked about makes it sound like as long as you're avoiding it, you're being successful, and therefore a lapse into it is a failure. A better way to look at this might be to view it as a manageable mental handicap. Wait until you come out of a bout of depression and then review how you felt and behaved during it. Were you especially overwhelmed? Well, maybe then you need to declutter your home. Were you especially lonely? Well, maybe you need to join a social group. Did you miss work? Well, maybe you need to be more disciplined about honoring your commitments to others generally, including showing up for work on time, returning messages promptly, even getting errands run on a set schedule. Ride the wave of depression on autopilot and then figure out a course correction when you come out of it. Bouts of depression provide regular opportunities to be your own savior. Studying things you can do, indulging in activities you enjoy, caring for those who love you back, all the ideas and actions espoused by Satanism, when done on your good days, will put you in a better place to get through your bad days. There's one more satanic practice I want to mention. It's not stated explicitly in the statements, the rules, or the sins, but a Satanist has got to have a sense of humor. When I came home and saw my altar, I could have cried and got all down about how nothing is going my way. Instead, I'm kind of in the habit of seeing the humor in things, and so my reaction was to laugh at how very much my chamber looked like a devil worshiper had just performed an animal sacrifice. I suppose bird lovers will hate me for that, but it was funny. <laughs> the God you save may be yourself. Don't hate yourself for failing to avoid depression. Accept your imperfections and stand proudly knowing you can and will manage your emotional needs using whatever tools you deem appropriate. Hell yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Very well done, Jesse, as usual. So how can people get in contact with you? How, how can they find a little more of you online? Uh, they can email me at, at 
idojesse at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook as Jesse Twain. And I have a blog, draftsfromasatanicwindbag.wordpress.com. Fantastic. Reach out. Let her know what you guys think. Seriously. She's doing amazing stuff here. Let's, uh, let's do a little between the horns and then jump over to Creature Feature. Did you ever want to sell your soul to the devil? Have all your wildest dreams become reality? Just sign a blood on the dotted line. Of course, not everyone can find the crossroads, so let me make it easy for you. Tune in every month to Nine Cents, and I'll bring you Down to the Crossroads. We'll discuss the blues, the devil, and everything in between. Down to the Crossroads with your host, Aaron Casabaugh. Every month, only on NineCentsPodcast.com. Satanism demands study, not worship, and I'm looking for a few outstanding study partners. So put on your thinking horns with me, Warlock M.A. Mandrake. It's time to read Between the Horns. The title of this number is The Magic of Humor. Two Satanists go to the doctor. In the waiting room, one of them sneezes. The other Satanist says, Bless yourself. Hey, if you don't get it, you're probably not your own god. Tough luck. Read the Satanic Bible. And if you still don't laugh, well, that's understandable, but, but, but anyway. In the essay, Taint Funny McGee, in Satan Speaks, Magus Anton Xander LeVay explains a principle that he summarizes in the first sentence. There is no sorcerer without a sense of humor. As a cartoonist and comedian, I take humor very, uh, <clears throat> seriously. More than mere entertainment, it is my favorite magical tool. During a recent commute, I boarded a bus in which my ideal seat was occupied by the purse of a woman one spot over. Er, excuse me, I said. She reluctantly moved her bag after mumbling. Seriously? When I asked her whether it was such a big deal, she pointed out the other open seats. Long story short, I empathized with my grumpy neighbor, then humorously explained the many reasons that this was the ideal seat, especially since the others would soon be taken at subsequent stops. Within a minute, I had her chuckling, even apologizing for snapping at me. Please keep in mind that I was not at all flirting with her, just being friendly to make the situation more pleasant for everyone involved. During that short ride, someone who was annoyed with me was suddenly treating me like a buddy. How's that for an abracadabra? I got my way while behaving like a gentleman, and in the process, I brought a little more cheer into the world. This also provided first-hand insight into human nature and helped me to further hone my comedic skills, such as they are. Little did this stranger know that she was assisting a warlock in his satanic studies. It was a good little moment. The magic of humor can also be directed inward. Lately, I've been deliberately introducing humor into experiences and practices that I tend to treat as purely solemn. After all, Satanists frequently reconcile the apparently irreconcilable. But this is for personal reasons. 
I am prone to overwhelming waves of highfalutin romanticism, and humor balances me out. Extreme seriousness induces tunnel vision, whereas humor is the ultimate liberation. Everything opens up. Possibilities become endless. Through humor, I achieve emotional and intellectual sovereignty through a playful perspective. The universe is my toy. Charles Baudelaire, the 19th century poet most famous for writing the collection Flowers of Evil, once said, Laughter is satanic. He then continued to expound upon this concept with thoughts that alternately mesh and clash with the principles of Satanism. But I do agree with his thought that laughter ultimately stems from a sense of superiority. To me, that sense is one of power, first and foremost, over one's own perspective. And yet, how many average folks expect Satanists to have a sense of humor? Whether we like it or not, their perception does affect us. Shadows and skulls abound in the imagery surrounding Satanism. Magistra Blanche Barton addressed this in The Secret Life of a Satanist. She quotes Magus LeVay, The truth is that those who surround themselves and speak most of death are probably the most life-loving of all, and truly like Satan. They find themselves dismayed that things can't be pure and complete the way they should be. If Satanists didn't care, they wouldn't be so dark and pessimistic. You can find plenty of optimists in lunatic asylums. Only fools are ever truly content. Makes sense to me. This dark current is also what gives us our means and capacity for humor. To quote LaVey again, One cannot have a true sense of humor without an equal sense of the profound. Again, this makes sense. Like any magical working, humor requires motivation. When one begins with a sense of genuine gravitas, humor is the ultimate catharsis, decompression, and transformation. Come to think of it, humor requires the same ingredients for a magical working listed in the Satanic Bible. Desire, timing, imagery, direction, and balance. The desire comes from that need to decompress to overcome seriousness and assert one's sense of joy. And everyone is at least aware of the importance of comedic timing. Imagery makes a joke more evocative and therefore more successful. As for direction, well, you need an audience, even if it's yourself. And the balance factor in this case is knowing your audience and tailoring your comedic strategy to get the strongest laughs. See? That proves it. Humor is magic. These musings barely scratch the surface of humor's magical potency, but it's something I think about often. With the right combination of words and imagery, suddenly you're convulsing, and it feels great. Laugh it up, folks. Until next time, this is Warlock M.A. Mandrake saying, Hail Satan. Feature. <laughs> 
Greetings, Adam, and hello to all Nine Cents listeners. I appreciate the chance to record my own creature feature for the show. I don't know how many of your listeners are fans of comic books, but maybe they'll be intrigued by this particular title. This isn't your daddy's back issue of Daredevil here. This is a real modern Robin Hood story. The book I'm talking about is called The Tithe, written by Matt Hawkins. It's an independent title, under the image label, and relatively new, having only premiered this past April. We open up with an excellent ironic quote that sums up the hypocrisy of organized religion. Giving to our ministry is doing the Lord's work. <laughs> yeah, right. The first pages are set during a typical evangelical service, complete with the pastor waving his arms around and making exclamations such as, Add to your heavenly account! while the sheep of the church blindly fork over all of their money while melodically chanting to their surrender of their earthly treasures. We cut to what a typical heist movie would consist of, a team of armed robbers working like a tactical team, armed with military-grade gear as well as with knowledge of the higher-ranking people of the church. After using the treasurer of the church to break into the vault, the team makes off with over two million dollars but not before a certain member of the congregation hacks into the church's video system and plays a video revealing just how corrupt their so-idolized pastor is. The background of this group of robbers is one of great admiration to me, since I am a fan of groups like Anonymous and various other gray hat hackers like Aaron Schwartz. They are revealed to be a hacker group known as Samaritan, whose goal is to knock over million-dollar churches across the nation, taking all the money earned in deceitful lies and redistributing it to charities they see fit, instead of it being picked away by the congregation to be used at their own discretion to fuel their own sinful lifestyles. The FBI soon gets involved, and we are introduced to an investigator who is a former hacker being taunted by Samaritan. Despite his role in the story, he has admiration for their craft. I imagine this can play out quite nicely in the black and white absolute world in which he is investigating. After the story, we are given a brief autobiography of the writer Matt Hawkins. After reading through it, I got a better understanding of why the story was written. The man was raised as Southern Baptist, but during his late 20s he went through what I like to call an enlightenment where he studied scripture in depth and realized just how ridiculous that belief system is. All in all, I give it a very positive review. Without giving away too much besides the main concept, I hope I've piqued your interest enough to give this title a chance. Any fan of indie titles will certainly enjoy it. The Tithe is currently on issue number 6, so early enough to catch up and keep up with the story on a monthly basis. Thank you for your time, Adam. I had much fun writing out this review, and if Mr. Hawkins were a listener, I am sure he would appreciate knowing there is one more fan of his book. Hail Satan, and Happy Halloween, everyone. 
And that's it for another show, folks. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. Of course, we're on social media, uh, Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and MySpace. Uh, you can connect with us, get updated on weekly topics, special events, or other Satanists' worthwhile endeavors. Uh, you can download shows Monday via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. But you can also check in at iTunes, Last.fm, Stitcher, YouTube uh, to tune into the show every week. Uh, however you get us, if you have the means, shoot us a rating and a comment. That's really for the benefit of everyone else looking for a show. So, uh, you know, share nine cents. We'd appreciate it, and so would the people that you would turn on to it. Of course, if you'd like to learn more about Satanism or uh, the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. It is quite literally the only source of true satanic information on the web. There's a lot of other places that claim it, but this is the only real one. Um, once again, thank you for joining me. And of course, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. The brilliant Jesse. Wonderful job as always, my dear. Uh, until next week, Hail Satan! Hail Satan! <laughs> <laughs>